Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Tudors episode 119 and the fourth installment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. While the podcast and all the content being shared over July and August is free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is an amazing Tudor book bundle, which includes the following titles. Forgotten Queens in Medieval and Early Modern Europe, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Estelle Peronk. Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Schutte's latest book, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. A huge thank you to Dr. Shuti for sponsoring this fantastic prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm very excited that joining me on the show to chat about portrayals of the Tudor queens on film is Dr. Owen Emerson. Owen is a social and cultural historian who works as the content and engagement supervisor at the beautiful Hever Castle. He has most recently co-written a book entitled The Berlins of Hever Castle with historian Claire Ridgway, and he's one of the content creators for the Inside Hever Castle online subscription service. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Owen. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'm so excited to be chatting with you again. 
Absolutely. I think this is third time lucky, Natalie. I think so. Now, it's actually been about a year since you were last on the show. And, you know, really fantastic that in that time, lots of new listeners have found the podcast. So would you mind just introducing yourself again to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background? Yes, of course. So I'm a social and cultural historian. Uh, I'm also the content and engagement supervisor at Heaver Castle, Um, which of course is the childhood home of Anne Boleyn and where I've been incredibly privileged to work for the last four years. I've also just co-written a book entitled The Boleyns of Hever with their magnificent historian Claire Ridgway. I'm also one of the content creators for the Inside Hever Castle online subscription service so have a lot to do with Hever. Sounds like you're pretty busy at the moment, Owen, doing lots of different things. So I am indeed. It's lovely, yeah. 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 So the topic for today is all things Tudor Queens and Consult's conversation is Tudor Queens on film. So let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those early depictions of the Tudor Queens on film? Yes, of course. Um, I think it's quite tragic, actually, that some of the earliest films about Tudor queens uh, on film have been lost. There's a film about Henry VIII and Catherine Howard from uh, 1910, which is lost. One which I'd particularly like to see is a a full film about Mary I from 1911 that was lost to history. Uh, Similarly, a a film all about Henry VIII's wives from 1911, similarly lost. And so one of our earliest depictions of uh, Anne Boleyn came in the 1920s. Uh, It's a German film, one of the first big budget films, really. And I have seen it a couple of times. It's very much the Victorian image of Anne Boleyn. Those images of Anne that were conjured in the Victorian era, this melodrama, this sort of hapless individual being chased by this tyrannical king, being hunted, um, is very much still present in the 1920s and actually I think that depiction of queenship has really long legs it stretches as far as the the 1950s another another good example would be the private life of Henry VIII that goes slightly against the grain of this narrative in that it makes its central narrative about Anne of Cleves as a comedy uh, and a typical comedy duo act between uh, the actors Lawton and Lancaster they were the man and wife I quite enjoyed the portrayal of Anne Boleyn in that film, actually. It's the one area of the film where it's not played for laughs and her brief sort of t- screen time as Anne, only the only bit of comedy that you can see there is sort of a skit between the executioners plays between these really quite touching scenes that Merle Oberon as Anne Boleyn gives us. And I'd say one of the really good examples of this... this This Victorian melodrama seeping into 20th century film comes in 1936. It's a a British film called Tudor Rose. It was also redubbed Nine Days a Queen because it got a second release because of the abdication crisis, the the royal turmoil that was happening uh, during those events. And we very much see, again, this, this trope of Lady Jane Grey in this example, being a very carefree young girl and being caught up in sort of the wicked Earl of Warwick's plans to usurp the throne. I'm really fond of this little film. It's a bit of peach, in my opinion, mainly because it's a, a moving version of the really breathtaking and chilling 
book plates that George Cruikshank created in the Victorian bestseller The Tower of London by Ainsworth. It tells exactly the same sort of story, but this is a a sort of a moving version of it. And, you know, these aren't accurate films. They uh, are telling really quite traditional stories, but it's not until later in in the 20th century that we sort of escaped that, that Victorian model. Yeah, I'm always amazed by all the different versions that we get of the of the queens. As you say, the Victorian, you know, damsel in distress and Berlin has persisted in some way, hasn't it? It really has. It's it's quite an enduring sort of myth of Anne's story. But in these in these early versions, none of the queens seem to have any kind of agency. They are just sort of responding to events rather than being involved in them. So. Yes, there, there's sort of a limit to their appeal to a modern audience, I would say, because these queens have evolved quite considerably over the 20th century on screen. So I'm I'm fond of them, but they're they're sort of they're not particularly challenging ideas about these women, if you know what I mean. Yes, that's a nice way of putting it. Very nice way of putting it, Owen. And I think if you if our listeners head onto YouTube, I think there are some of the early films on there that you could that you can entertain yourself with and have a little look. I'll um I'll endeavor to add some links to those at the end. So Oh, and there are countless films, you know, miniseries, television shows that depict Elizabeth I, of course. What's some of your favourites and why? I think Elizabeth I has done the best out of all the Tudor queens on screen. There are some really, really memorable and challenging performances too. And my favourite will always, I think, be Glenda Jackson. She did a, a six-part miniseries in the 1970s and, and also did a film version of the same role. And I think it's an incredibly brave performance, particularly the series, because uh, it was made on a stripped-down budget and there's kind of nowhere to hide in that scenario. And she is breathtaking, I think. I also really enjoy her performance in the later film, Mary of Scots. She definitely has a far less screen time in that film but she really sparkles in that uh, role she sort of really sort of perfected it I think uh, in the in the economy of the film that she uh, is given plus seeing her punch Robert Dudley in the cod piece <laughs> is amazingly funny still I don't know why there's actually a series that is lost to history that I would love to see it was broadcast in, on, on the BBC in the 1960s and it was called Kenilworth, uh, telling the story of Elizabeth and Dudley uh, at Kenilworth Castle. And Gemma Jones, who is one of my most favourite actresses, played Elizabeth in this series. So I would do quite a lot to be able to see that series. It is believed to be lost to history, which is tragic. But if any of your viewers enjoy early BBC drama series and can stomach the sort of wobbly sets that they bring uh, in return for really glorious scripting and acting then do look out for Gemma Jones's performance in The Duchess of Duke Street for the 1970s. Now she doesn't strictly play a queen in this series uh, and it's certainly not Tudor but the the series that it was based on around uh, a really interesting working class cook 
called Rosa Lewis. She was actually titled the Queen of Cooks in her lifetime. Uh, so I hope that's not too jan- tangential to bring up in this podcast. But I just thought of it because it's a really amazing series with a, a, an incredible actress, Gemma Jones. So that's a, a little aside for you. Yes, I'm, I've made a note because I actually... I, I feel bad that I don't actually know Gemma Jones. Is that terrible, Owen? I'm going to have to go <laughs> do some research. You'll probably know her as Bridget Jones's mother. Ah, um, okay. Yes. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant actress, as you say. Exactly. Now, I'm also quite surprised to hear about all these lost films and shows. What a pity. I wonder if there's some way of approaching the, the BBC to, to see about that Kenilworth one. That sounds incredible. It really does. It's It got amazing reviews at the time. Unfortunately, I think because a lot of these early series were recorded to, to tape, they just sim- simply weren't archived in the way that we would now. So, I, w- I mean, I would just love it if a fragment of it turned up so I could just get a glimpse. Uh, and of course, people didn't have VCRs in the way that they would later have. So the, the chances of other copies being kept... I'm slim and minimal, but yes, I, that's that's definitely one series that I've, I've long seen, but sadly it's, it's never happened. Oh, well, if anyone's listening and they know how we can get our hands on that, please get in touch with Owen or myself. We'd love you forever. And I, because you mentioned um, Robert Dudley, uh, an image of Tom Hardy, of course, popped into my head. Uh, what do you think of that series with Tom Hardy as Lester, the Virgin Queen? I thought it was incredibly exciting, actually. I think Anne-Marie Duff brought something really interesting to the role of Elizabeth. What was most intoxicating for me about the series was the music. A really, really imaginative sort of atmosphere was created with this really quite different soundscape. Really clever usage of instruments that sort of evocative of the early modern periods, but with a contemporary sort of twist to it. And yeah, I actually really like that series. It got quite a lot of criticism because of historical inaccuracy. I, I've yet to see a production that is accurate. So that's right. Things like that, things like that don't particularly bother me. Um, I like a really good story. I like a really good drama. And I like it when writers and actors are able to give us the essence of someone without necessarily having to be sort of too dogged in 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 the history side of things. Yeah, exactly. That's actually one of my favourite series as well. And Anne-Marie Duff, I think, is actually my favourite Elizabeth. I know there's lots of brilliant women that have portrayed her, but I think, as you say, she captured something that I I found really intoxicating as well. And, of course, Tom Hardy, I think, did an excellent job as as the Earl of Leicester. He really captured him as well. He's a bit of a dreamboat, isn't he? He's a bit of a dreamboat, just quietly, yes. (laughs) He was he was sort of um, in his sort of poster boy stage there, wasn't he? My goodness. It, I think it's probably the most compelling version of their love story, actually, that, that's come to screen. I did quite like Helen Mirren, actually. I thought she was pretty good. And, you know, you're sort of seeing her in later life. I could go on because <laughs> there are very there are very few interpretations of Elizabeth that I dislike. I even like some of the really hammy sort of crackers ones like um you know with Bette Davis they're completely of their time they're utterly ridiculous and there's something I find really interesting about like proper American productions of English history there's something a bit uncanny about them 
something that doesn't sit quite right about it. But that's actually quite nice. That's quite a nice juxtaposition because actually I don't think we would recognise Tudor England if it was put in, on screen in front of us. So maybe that discomposure adds something to the experience. Plus, I, you know, watching Errol Flynn trying his hardest to look good in tights is just <laughs> hilarious. He, he takes himself way, way too seriously. So, yeah. And what about Catherine of Aragon, Owen? Do you think she's ever been fairly represented on film? No, I don't, actually. I think overall representations for Catherine have been really quite similar and, frankly, depressingly so. We only really see Catherine towards the end of her reign, and I think that's really quite regrettable. It helps to make her look disposable, and that really saddens me because her story is remarkable, and I have a huge amount of time for Catherine and particularly the Catherine that I found in the archive and through research. Having said that, there are some real standout performances, not least by Annette Crosby, who gave a real knockout performance in 1970. I also really enjoyed Francis Cooker in the 1972 film version of the, the same series, and because it gave us an all-too-brief sort of flash of her golden glory days. But, uh, you know, I often think which which of the wives comes off, gets the, the rawest deal, as it were, uh, on, on the screen. And I do have to say, I think it is Catherine of Aragon. Yeah, and that's regrettable. It really is because her story is fascinating. Of course, more recently, we've had, you know, a two-part series about Catherine's life. So that, in a way, does give me a bit of hope that we will stop seeing Catherine as a you know again a victim someone that is just perpetually unhappy because of all the losses she's suffering which of course she did but there was more to her than that you know she did have many many glory days and you know I think Henry loved her and I think she loved Henry and we never really see her story as a love story and that saddens me because it, it helps to as I said before, make her seem disposable, it, make her look as if, you know, she is a failure, as some historians have very much liked to characterise her. I don't see her like that at all. Um, so, yes, she, need, she needs a bit of a renaissance on screen, I think. Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think Catherine's reign was extraordinary and it was incredibly successful. Of course, we all focus yes. on, you know, we focus on the fact that she Obviously, there was no living male heir, but her reign was incredible. And, and she was so successful that she actually avoided any criticism when she decided to not do what her husband was telling her to do. That's how successful she was. She'd built those connections, those patronage links. She, it was incredible. And I want to see a Catherine like that. Yeah, so do I. Um, I think you talked so brilliant to me once about the fact that, you know, these, these women had sort of built up a reputation. They had sort of accumulated all of this respect and she really is able to cash that in uh, when she needs to the most people do not criticize her defiance at what Henry is trying to do to her I think it's entirely possible to look at Anne Boleyn and find her admirable and to look at Catherine and to find her exactly the same uh, you know, I, I, I've never really understood this sort of this pendulum that people experience when they prefer or find someone 
more interesting than say a predecessor i don't really experience that i i think they're both badass and i i always think to myself in a in a parallel universe without henry i think they probably would have got on really well because they shared many of the same qualities so yes absolutely we, we need, yeah. yeah we need a a, a a, a, a focus on Catherine you know she's not a bit part <laughs> she really isn't yeah no and I just want to touch on what you said there because I just happened to have right next to me Owen a little quote here and it's by Michelle Beer and this is what we had discussed that in during Catherine's reign she built spiritual authority and moral capital I love that that's a quote yes. from Michelle's work and I'll be chatting to Michelle as well during this podcast series so that then what you know her actions that may have been viewed as defiant possibly had someone else done them were absolutely acceptable to to the the people because of how successful her reign had been and how loved she was. So it's so, so important. And I too, I want to see that kind of Catherine on screen as well. Uh, now we could talk about her forever, but let's move on slightly. <laughs> in terms of costume and set design, I know you love looking at these things in detail. And which films do you think deserve a special mention? That's a really good question. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Anna the Thousand Days. And I really love the, the film sets, the costumes in that production. Now, they aren't particularly authentic. And they made, for example, the interiors of Heaver Castle way bigger than they actually are which, you know, is understandable because they've got to get crew in, etc. But they feel really rich and they feel really sturdy. And I'm actually privileged to own a couple of pieces from that film set. And, th- and they really are amazing creations. But the film that I really enjoy aesthetically is actually Lady Jane. It feels a bit more dirty and a bit more smoky and, you know, a lot less glossy than, than Anne of the Thousand Days. The clothes look like they've been worn a few times beforehand. They don't immediate, they're not immediately recognisable as costumes. And they also filmed a huge amount on location, not least at Hever Castle, for many scenes supposed to be Richmond Palace and the Tower of London. And it's always a thrill to, to see Hever looking really lush on the screen. So that's actually a production that I really do enjoy the aesthetics of. The, the, the lawns aren't beautifully manicured. You can see mud. It, it just has a... It, it doesn't look like it's been made to seem perfect, but in a way, the, the fact that it hasn't makes it feel more perfect, if that makes sense. You really do, you can almost smell the ale in the alehouses and it's, it's not a sugar-coated production, although the story very much is, if that makes sense. I've got a lot of time for what Trevor Nunn was trying to do with that film. And it is slightly an oddball film in the fact that many uh, such productions are fairly conservative productions and he really tried to do something slightly different but having praised this really highly detailed and constructed sense of authenticity in that production I do also want to give a shout out to the lower budget BBC productions like Elizabeth R the Six Wives of Henry VIII and In the Shadow of the Tower that that glorious 1970s Tudor trilogy and and I do appreciate that some people really don't like the aesthetic of those productions but to me, it feels like you're at the theatre and there's something really quite refreshing about not being distracted by the gorgeousness of sets and authentic locations and allowing yourself to be immersed in the actors and their story 
And I really love good dialogue. I don't think you can beat it. And in a weird kind of way, the, the simplicity of the sets in those productions really emphasised the drama for me. Plus the, the budget costumes that they were able to produce for those series were phenomenal. So that yeah, I, I, I do really love being immersed in this sense of authenticity. But at the same time, there is something to be said for just really good drama and really good storytelling. So I think negates the, the need to, you know, be so, have such attention to detail. Yeah, absolutely. There is something so theatrical about those earlier films, isn't there? There's exactly as you say, you're less distracted by all the other amazing things happening in the background. So to, to focus on the story and the acting, it's it's a different experience. Not everyone enjoys it, as you've said. I think some people do enjoy the more modern, you know, approach, but I quite like it as well. You've mentioned so many films already. I'm trying to keep notes here, but I'll have to ask you for a, a page of links later, I think, Owen. Is there a lesser known Tudor film that you think's worth telling our listeners about? Yes. Um, there's a budget film from the 1980s that centralises around the story of William Tyndale. And it's interesting to me because it's the first screen portrayal of Anne Boleyn has any kind of involvement in religious reform and can be seen to be influencing Henry with reformist ideas. I think this is a really poorly explored facet to Anne's story, uh, or at least a, a rare, you know, rarely explored story of Anne's life. And the actress who plays Anne in that production is called Una Kirsch, and I think she's really quite good as Anne even if the production as a whole hasn't aged particularly well, it's rather clunky. So yes, that's, that's a, I believe you can watch that online as well. It's one of those areas of Anne's life that I've always wanted to see explored more. And, you know, it, that's really the only production that takes her role in the, the Henrican Reformation seriously. I've always found it strange how we, we don't ever question Catherine's uh, religious zeal or her piety or anything like that. But Anne's is questioned all the, all the time. Was she genuinely pious? Was she genuinely a religious woman? I, I don't know why, but this seems to come up a lot, doesn't it? It does. And I think actually Catherine's religion is used to emphasise her grief. We only see Catherine in a religious context because she's asking for a son. And it's kind of insulting, actually, that that's all we see of Catherine's religion. She's sort of pious and religious and, and sad. And um, I was speaking about this to Gareth Russell a few few weeks ago. And Anne is never afforded that. Um, I mean, she, she barely is seen praying on the screen, let alone you know, actually uh, having any kind of religious experience, not least reformist ideas. So, yeah, the religion on, on screen with the queens is always uh, slightly disappointing, actually. And I would love to, to see it being taken far more seriously. I'd love for Catherine's really quite pious life being treated as something more than just desire basically for a son and just just having Anne taken seriously in relation to religion is would be a treat it would wouldn't it and while we're on the topic of Anne which actress do you think has best captured her character and personality obviously there's been so many brilliant women that have portrayed her and we're still they're still coming out with more amazing actresses so who do you think has has best captured her 
it's a never-ending stream of delight for me because I'm one of those strange people who really quite enjoys aspects of every performance of Anne that I've seen. Now, you know I'm a devotee to one particular performance, um, but with my academic hat on, I'd like to suggest that quite a number of actresses have captured a facet of Anne's personality over the years. Rarely, however, have any of them been given a complex enough script to capture all of her personality traits. And I'm going to name someone who hasn't been particularly popular in the sort of Anne community. But I think it's really important for us to look at individuals through different lenses. And I think Anne Boleyn was really quite a remarkable woman. But I also know that her contemporaries, or many of her contemporaries, didn't like her at all. She was a, a divisive character in her own lifetime, and she has remained so, um, so for that reason, I'd like to give a really big shout out to Claire Foy's performance of Anne, because it does give us an unfiltered look at Anne from the perspective of her opponents. And what I really admire about that performance is not that it's likeable because it isn't necessarily likeable, but you cannot help but feel complete sympathy with her at the end. It, it's quite a remarkable performance in the, at the beginning of the series. I really wasn't looking forward to scenes with her in, to be honest, because I didn't like seeing that side of her. And But, but that journey that she went on actually mirrors what happened in real life, because even Anne's greatest enemies let's name Eustace Chapuy, felt bad for her at the end, thought her to be innocent, was sort of really um, horrified at what happened to her. And that performance really enables us to show that art. It's, it's not a performance that I think shows a whole Amberlynn. That wasn't the point of it. Um, it was the little window into what her, her sort of adversaries would have seen when they were looking at her, the public face of Anne. You don't see the private Anne in that in that depiction. Um, so yes, I would like to give a shout out to Claire, Claire Foy's performance. I thought it was magnificent, really. It was absolutely a brilliant performance. And it's so, you've brought up so many interesting points there, Owen. I was just thinking of the new research that's come out recently by the brilliant professor Joanne Delaneva, which I've published an episode on if anyone wants to listen. Uh, she's recently uncovered, as you know, 15, I think it was 15 new verses in the poem Lancelot de Carle wrote just days after Anne's execution from London. And part of the, the most interesting of those 15 verses deal with the fact that the public, he, he's writing about her execution and the public that witnessed her on her in her final moments, they're painted as a repentant group of people, as a group of people who realize they've maligned her and that they've, you know, got her wrong in a way. And it's, a, and it's these particular lines that infuriated Henry when he got his hands on them. But there is that, that's a very interesting aspect there of how Yes, you know, she inspired fierce loyalty in some, but of course, hatred in others. So I think it was, I think it's Professor Eric Ives that had said once that she maybe was not a person to like, you know, someone to admire, to respect, but possibly not someone as likable as we want her to be, you know, so that's, it's really interesting. It is. And it, it's sort of like the, it's a really difficult part to play, I think, because how do you, how do you portray someone who, you know, does divide opinion, this sort of, you know, chalk and cheese sort of aspect to her that 
you know, really delights some people and sort of mesmerises them, this character, this intellect, this wit. How do you do that whilst ensuring that half of the your, your audience are annoyed or irritated or put out by this individual? Um, it's a really difficult thing to, to nail down. And, you know, one of my favourite performances of Anne Boleyn is... Uh, by Jean-Guerre Brujold in Anne of a Thousand Days. I don't, however, think she's particularly unlikable. I don't think you can really say, yeah, Eustace Chapuis is not going to like her. There's, there's, there's an element of her that you know, isn't, isn't particularly likable. So in that regard, it probably isn't the most successful performance because it doesn't give you that, that scope to uh, both love and hate, if you know what I mean, that Marmite element. Yeah, there's that tension is really interesting. And I find that the quote by Cromwell, it's actually, sorry, it's it's Chapuis that is, is quoting his conversation with Cromwell after Anne's um, downfall. And he comments that even Thomas Cromwell, after, you know, everything that had happened, still wanted to praise, and he was talking about George and Anne, still wanted to praise their intelligence, their courage, and their wit. I think this really does show why she is so extraordinary. And that's not just me saying that. Clearly, her contemporaries, yes, there was something perhaps that, you know, made people uncomfortable about her, but there were certainly lots to admire. And even Thomas Cromwell, after having played a very major role in her downfall, can still praise her and still feels that he wants to praise her. I think that's really interesting. It really is. It's an astonishing window into that moment, isn't it? And, you know, Cromwell has, you know, his, his fingerprints are all over her demise. But that, that's the one sort of thing that we know about Anne. She might divide opinion, but everyone is listening to her. You know, people sort of can't stop. It's like, I don't know, it's like, it's like when you get a real baddie in a soap, you, you're, you're transfixed in the, in the story. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be on the side, but you can't stop looking. It's sort of like car crash TV, isn't it? We find that time and time again with Anne. People who are really opposed to her just can't stop mentioning what she's doing. They're kind of <laughs> obsessed with watching her. It's so true. And we could talk about, and maybe we need another episode on where we're just talking about those kinds of things. But let me ask you, because I know how much you love Anne of the Thousand Days. You've just mentioned it there. What are some of the reasons why, if it's not Genevieve Bujol's performance that's particularly drawing you, what other, what else is attracting you to that film? I think a lot of it's about nostalgia for me. It's, it's definitely the first image that I ever saw of Anne Boleyn when I was roughly about four. My mum showed it to me. And it's just, I've, I found it incredibly compelling at that age. And it's become something of a sort of warm safety blanket for me in a way, because this isn't the most faithful depiction of Anne on screen. But I do think it was a landmark performance by Bujold. Now, the sort of play of Anne of the Thousand Days came a couple of decades beforehand. And although they wanted to create a film in the 1940s with the original cast, it was deemed inappropriate, mainly because of the, the subject matter of adultery and incest. Uh, there was a um, really strict code 
uh, in Hollywood, the Hayes Code, which would have prevented the, the discussion of um, things that were considered to be anti-family values. So it sort of, sort of put a hold on the production. I think that was a good thing because as the wonderful Susan Bordeaux has explained in her look at the creation of Anne Boleyn, Maxwell Anderson, who created the original play, had actually written um, a play about Henry VIII. Uh, it's called Anne of the Thousand Days, but this is very much Henry's film. It's about Henry's reminiscences and his regrets. And there's a wonderful line in the play, which sort of sums up the fact that it is Henry's play. He says something akin to, uh, it would have been easier to forget you living than forget you dead. You know, this is a man racked with guilt about what he's done to Anne. And it's all, you know, it's all told from Henry's perspective perspective really uh, he's given the last lines in the film the the screenplay was adapted for the 1969 film and you know there's no mistaking the fact that this is Anne's film there's a massive shift away from uh, Henry's narrative and it's also I think the first definable departure from this Victorian image that we were talking about earlier of Anne being wholly a victim this Anne is full of blood and fire and she defies everyone this is about her she defies her family she refuses the king the king threatens to pull heaver castle down she doesn't care and she asks for power in return for acquiescing to henry's advances make me your queen and she is also seen to be exercising that power at uh, first she is pleading for more and Fisher's life then she's demanding that they're executed this is someone this is a woman exercising power on screen it's a real departure from what we see before and it does depart from this traditional narrative and I would argue that every single performance of Anne thereafter owes its roots to to Bujold's performance Anne is never again placed in this passive box of victimhood they don't not all, all performances look like what what jean vier did in that moment some are less sympathetic but they're all full of agency no matter what it is that Anne is scheming or trying to do we know that this is what Anne wants we know what Anne wants as well as what Henry wants and that it was a massive departure. And I think that's why it has such long legs. It does relate to every single Anne performance afterwards. And in that sense, it was a watershed moment. I think it, it captured something of Anne's spirit. You know, we can argue about all the details of Anne's life, but that she was spirited, I don't think we, we can argue. And I think Bajol did a brilliant job at capturing that. And I have to also say that I think that the added scenes in the tower where she gets to confront Henry... I, I, you know, I, I just think there's so many of us that want, you know, wish that she'd had that opportunity. And so including that, of course, it's veering from what we know, but it was so powerful. And there are some really memorable lines there, aren't there? Oh, my goodness. It's it, it's sort of like, you know, posthumous justice, isn't it? Um, it's such a cathartic moment. And it is sort of Hollywood sugarcoating at its very best because no one wants to sort of face the reality that Anne went dying, went to her death, knowing that Elizabeth 
wouldn't inherit the throne. I don't think there was any certain, could have been any certainty on Anne's part that Elizabeth would succeed. Anne knew at this point that Henry was going to move on. He was going to try and have a son with someone else. And it indeed does. So there's, you know, there, there are many awful facets to what happened to Anne Boleyn. One of the worst to stomach is this realisation that, you know, everything she's she's worked for has, has come to nothing. And no one wants to see her going to the scaffold with that knowledge. So it, it's a really, really good example of where veering from the truth can be, you know, transformative for the audience and can give us also a snapshot of what is going to come. Anne might not have known what was going to come, but Elizabeth did succeed to the throne and Anne's blood was well spent in that regard. So it's forgivable. I, I agree. I think it's, it's, and I love how you say it's a cathartic experience. I think exactly for people that admire her and that are interested in her life, you know, I think there's something very special about those, those scenes. And as you yes. say, of course, and lived without the benefit of hindsight. I think we forget this so often when we look at not just Anne's story, but the Tudors in general, we, we want to read this story backwards. And of course yeah. they lived like you and I, they didn't know what was around the corner. So it's a very powerful scene. I think very powerful. Now, how do you feel, Owen, about how the Tudor Queen consorts were represented on Showtime's The Tudors? Now, this is this is a hugely popular series. Even now, still so many people re-watch it and watch it on special anniversaries. And it's brought so many new people to this field and so many people interested in finding out the facts after watching it. So how do you feel about it? You know, it's another guilty pleasure. It's, it's wonderfully ludicrous in parts, and yet it does have glimmers of genius uh, to it. Very occasionally, it gets sort of almost intriguingly close to the historical record, and then all of a sudden it has, you know, Henry fisting pies and <laughs> other wild delights. And I, I, there's a part of me that kind of wishes they'd gone the whole hog and gone sort of full six the musical and sort of embraced the anachronisms and, and provided a bit more meaning, I guess, and, and relief to the lives of the queens. I, I, do, I can find some of the performances and some of the, how it's written particularly flat at times. And maybe it does only really serve to reinforce some of those really tired tropes about them too but as I mentioned before there are real sparks of glory and I'm I'm one of those uh, individuals who I find historical inaccuracy forgivable you cannot but recognize the the fact that it has brought a whole new generation into the field now of course some people will watch the Tudors and will go no further. They will absorb some of that information and maybe some of it's wrong. But it would be really remiss not to mention the fact that a huge swathe of other people would have got hooks and they would have gone onto websites such as yours or the Anne Boleyn files and would have found out much more about these individuals and, and seen where, you know, there's a bit of dramatic license or, um, you know, completely bonkers omissions or inventions um, and and that that's a good thing it's a good thing that people are drawn into these stories and to be honest I think I'd be out of a job if there weren't these sort of massive departures from the truth because 
you know, lots of people come to the place that I work with ideas and it's it, it provides the foundation of amazing conversation. And that's why I, I, I think it's sort of a duty to understand where these ideas come from, because it, 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 it's part of the collective image of these people, you know, that's building up over time. So, yeah, it's 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 wonderfully sort of daft, the Tudors, but it's got a dear place in my heart as well. Yeah, me too. I, I it's been a while actually, and I'm thinking I should go back and, and rewatch a little because it is it is as you say some crazy crazy departures from <laughs> the truth. But you know, it's a show. It's it's allowed creative license. So it um, is. What about Helena Bonham Carter Owen? She's played both Lady Jane Grey and Anne Boleyn. So did you enjoy these performances? I really did. I really liked how. Uh, sort of emotionally demonstrative her portrayal of Anne Boleyn was. And I also found her Jane Grey really compelling. Again, neither of them are particularly accurate performances, but they are really compelling. And I actually studied the, the film Lady Jane in my doctoral thesis because, as I alluded to before, it's one of the only productions that is afforded sort of a, a left-leaning perspective. Trevor Nunn was actually really explicit about this when the film came out. He actually said, I wanted to put like the, the minor strike of 1984 in the Tudor world. And you can you can see how that that scenario came about. I mean, if you look at what Jane does when she gets to the throne, she's wanting to abolishing. Uh, abolish branding she's wanting to secure jobs she's wanting to reassert fiscal responsibility by creating a real shilling and not defrauding people she wants to ban corporal punishment in schools and so that children can you know learn in a, a caring environment she's giving away the royal wardrobe for goodness sake to people on the streets i mean this is sort of proto-socialism really uh, on screen and and mary wonderful performance by Jane Lapiter is the Tudor Margaret Thatcher who is going to bring Jane down. I mean, it's a it's a gloriously daft um, sort of concept. It's a massive departure from what actually happens. But it's in, you know, as, as a historian, I really like to see different lenses put on. And, and I think there are parts of that film which are particularly compelling so it's it's a rather usual unusual production in that films about queens can be fairly conservative so yeah i did i did enjoy it i mean it's a lady jane is a bit of a tearjerker to be honest i mean for all the wrong reasons really <laughs> um but yeah it's it, again I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of it yeah now, I can't, Owen, go past, you know, mentioning Helena Bonham Carter without remembering Ray Winstone, of course, as Henry VIII. Now, <laughs> what did you think of, I, I have a soft spot for Ray Winstone's performance of Henry VIII, particularly love him running down the beach screaming and, you know, whatever he was doing um, yeah. in that accent that, you know, I just, oh, I love it. What did you think of Ray Winstone? Uh, it's... Um... It's got a bit of Sid James about it, you know, from Carry On Henry, that sort of um, gangster sort of cockney. It's not my favourite performance of Henry. <laughs> However, there are certain aspects of his character that I do find compelling. And actually, when he doesn't talk, when he just sits <laughs> still, there is there is a real good likeness at times. So you're thinking, oh my God, that, that does look a bit like 1536 Henry. 
Yes, I, I, I do think he sort of did the sunshine and, and, and storms of Anne's relationships fairly well. It's just a, it's budgeting all the wrong way, if you know what I mean, in that it's, it's sort of a mongrel production. It takes a lot of storylines from other productions, sort of fuses them together without really knowing that they don't fit, if that makes sense. But I, again, it's a guilty pleasure every now and again, you know, every few years I will watch it because, you know, there's some really funny scenes in there. I don't necessarily think they're meant to be funny, but yes, I, I look if, <laughs> if for anybody listening, if you have not seen Henry VIII played by Ray Winston, please go immediately and and watch because it's at you know at the very least it's entertaining. So many of the movies we've been discussing were obviously filmed on sets, of course, but some also made use of real historic houses, as you've mentioned, especially lots of the external shots. So can you tell us about some of those filming spots? We've heard about Heaver as well, which is lovely. Are there any others that you'd like to to tell us about? Yes, one of my favourite sort of locations on screen is Penshurst Place, which is only four miles away from Heaver. And it's always a treat to see it. It's been in so many, so many productions, and particularly the, the wonderful Barons Hall there. And also Dover Castle, that has a really fascinating and long history for being the double of the Tower of London, which I find really fascinating. The, the real tower, of course, changed dramatically since the the Tudor era, not least during the Victorian era. So actually, Dover probably looks a bit closer to the Tudor Tower of London than the Tower of London does today. So you'll you'll see Dover Castle in multiple productions. Lady Jane uses the tower, uh, same in Wolf Hall, um, the other Berlin girl. Yes, I really think it's quite effective when it's put on screen as the tower. It's quite chilling if I'm honest. Interestingly, Heaver has rarely been used in films about Anne Boleyn, particularly the interior. Um, indeed, we see far more of Lady Jane Grey at Heaver on screen in the film Lady Jane than any about Anne. So I would love, actually, to see a whole drama about the Boleyns filmed at Heaver Castle. That would be magical for me, I think. But yeah, there, there are so many beautiful Tudor properties which do are often seen on screen and it does I think help to bring that period to life in a way that film sets necessarily can't I don't think. I love Penshurst Place as well that's just stunning so if anyone's ever going to Heaver of course you know add Penshurst Place to the list because it's not far as you say and it's beautiful absolutely beautiful so Oh, and obviously you like a lot of these films and series and you're able to find something positive about all of them or this is what I, I want to know now. Now, be honest. Is there any production that you feel is a real travesty that you just can't overlook something about it? Yes. In terms of historical accuracy, I would probably say Anonymous from, I think it's 2011. But for all its daftness, it's still a guilty pleasure, I'm afraid. There are very few films about the Tudor era that I am like, no, I, I cannot indulge myself. <laughs> You know, that that one of the reasons I think Anonymous, which if your viewers have never seen it, it's a sort of a conspiracy film, conspiracy theory film about Shakespeare and the Earl of Oxford writing Shakespeare's plays. One of the reasons I adore it as a guilty pleasure is because it's a genuine joy to see mother and daughter 
Vanessa Redgrave and Jodie Richardson playing a young and old Elizabeth. There's something really, really beautiful about that. Plus, I think it's massively badass that Vanessa Redgrave has played Anne Boleyn, Mary Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I on film. But Jean-Pierre Bujold actually rejected the same role of Mary Queen of Scots because she didn't want to be typecast as a headless queen. But I think Vanessa Redgrave has worn the crown really well and she can keep it, in my opinion, she rules. So yes, that's that's the one film that is so historically inaccurate that I I couldn't recommend it to someone unless I said this is, a you know, this is ridiculous with history, but just enjoy it for what it is, you know. I actually don't know if I've seen it. I'm trying to remember, does it, has it come out with a different title or has it only ever been anonymous? I think it's only ever been anonymous because the, the, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a well-worn sort of conspiracy theory that yeah. Shakespeare didn't write the plays. Um, what I find hilarious about it is it really takes this seriously. I mean, it uses a lot of actors who buy into this narrative um, of, of Shakespeare not being the author. But because it takes itself so seriously, it doesn't realise how daft it is. And that's wonderfully appealing to me. I always love that ju- juxtaposition. And yes, so that's, that's again, a guilty pleasure. Excellent. I, well, I'm going to find it because I actually am not sure if I've seen it. So I'm going to watch that. And just as an aside as well, Owen, um, and for anyone listening that wants to exp- that question of Shakespeare's authorship a little bit more, please listen to my interview with Stuart Kells. So he has actually been on the search for Shakespeare's library for some time. He does, of course, believe Shakespeare is the author of the plays, but he he deals and talks to a lot of people who don't. And I was very um, intrigued to hear of a name I'd never heard associated with this conspiracy theory, and that's Sir Henry Neville. Have you heard of him? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know. And he was telling me that apparently a lot of Australians are, and I think he called them, Nevillians. <laughs> I think it's That's something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. So there you go. There's, and it's funny because, you know, a person like I love Tudor history, but I have never really focused on Shakespeare. And I think that's because I've spent most of my time in Henry VIII's reign rather than yeah. later. So yeah, anyone listening, have a listen to Stuart Kells, very knowledgeable man. So, oh, and you've, you've talked about the fact that historical inaccuracies just don't bother you, which is, which is really, really interesting because of course there are a lot of people get very upset by them, aren't they? And, and find it difficult to, to watch a show if they feel it's not historically accurate, but you're quite happy to, um, to view all different interpretations. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really, um, you know, people are often just really surprised to hear that historical inaccuracies in films don't particularly bother me. And I probably go a bit further and say that I actually really enjoy studying these inaccuracies. I love the social history of the early modern period, but I also specialise in 20th century history with a strong focus on culture and emotion. So I personally really enjoy unpicking why these characters on the screen change so dramatically and ask myself why the stories of these women shift over time. And in reality, each generation sees these queens, these Tudor queens differently. And that's because the story they have been told has been tailored to what the creators believe the audience want and expect and therefore the the changes in these stories when we when we flit from 
the Victorian victim to the the, the thousand day queen, the, the fire and the blood with Genevieve Bourgeois. These are often reflective of, of changes in attitudes or, or, or at least certainly the presumption of a change in attitude on the part of these Norman television production uh, creators. So I don't really get angry much about fictional portrayals. Having said that, I don't like some of it, but that's a different thing. For example, there are two completely unnecessary and gratuitous rape scenes of Anne by Henry that I think I'm correct in saying that Peter Morgan wrote in Henry VIII in 2003 with Ray Winston and again in the film version of The Other Bling Girl in 2008. I think we need to have conversations about these productions and I don't believe that historical accuracy of a, the, or the historical accuracy of a piece should have any bearing over its value to us as research. I was actually berated recently on the lovely Twitter sphere <laughs> for listening to <laughs> and, and for promoting and listening to uh, a podcast featuring the actress Charlotte Hope, who has most recently played Catherine of Aragon in The Spanish Princess. And I think the objection that this person had centralised around the idea that the production was so inaccurate that it wasn't worthy of academic attention. But I would argue that series is the longest and most thorough depiction of Catherine of Aragon to be produced to date. And of course it does, like many, many productions, depart radically from the historical record. But most importantly to me, it's a radical departure from the eternally miserable bit part that Catherine is normally afforded. And and many many people will have conceived this new image of Catherine. And as we said before, there's far more to Catherine than her grief. And let's face it, she is more than Anne Boleyn's understudy. And, you know, for that reason alone, it's worthy of our attention. And having said all of that, I think we all have aspects of the Tudor era that we just enjoy seeing brought to life on a screen. And when a film aligns to how we envisage the past, it is a magical thing. And I think that feeling of composure that emerges from that sense of authenticity definitely underpins why some people do get upset about inaccuracies, because it feels cheap, it feels like a lost opportunity, and it detaches the viewer from a sense of belief. For me personally, I really like it when they get the head and footwear right in films. <laughs> as niche as that probably sounds, I can forgive zips, I can forgive floating roughs, but I'm a real sucker for a, an authentic, good French hood. And I get really excited when I see it done well. But in all honesty, I don't expect it to be done well because it rarely is. And I think this is because so many productions actually reuse the costumes from previous productions. And I just refuse to believe that I'm the only person who loves spotting these reuses in films. I love, for example, the fact that in Elizabeth R, Queen Mary is seen wearing her wicked stepmother, Anne Boleyn's French hood from the film Out of the Thousand Days. I mean, Mary would be absolutely livid. And I love that juxtaposition. I love the fact that, you know, productions do reuse costumes and, and that really helps to help shed light on why errors in costumes sort of spread between 
productions. So yes, it's a really interesting question about historical accuracy. I think there are more interesting conversations to be had about it than whether or not something is good because it's accurate or not. I think Under the Thousand Days is good, but it's terribly inaccurate. And and people get quite upset when you say that, but I'm sorry, it is. It is an inaccurate film. And I would go further to say that if we did see an accurate depiction of Tudor life on screen, we probably wouldn't enjoy it all that much because we wouldn't see a huge amount and large swathes of it we'd find boring. You know, film is drama, it is fiction. We don't have long gaps in narratives. We don't have awkward silences. This is a completely artificial way of looking at the past. And if people can, if you can get past like the, the discomposure of inaccuracies, there's a lot of fun to be had. You know, these are meant to be entertaining. And I genuinely find a lot of them to be entertaining in, in spite of inaccuracies. So I think there's a deeper conversation that we could have about historical inaccuracy rather than whether or not it makes a film good. Yeah, absolutely. You've raised so many interesting points there. As you say, we could continue talking just about this for another hour. Um, and I think regardless of the, you know, the accuracy, there is always, as you've said, insight to be had from these films and these representations. And there's a lot to be said about the, the information it gives us about the period in which it was created. So I think there's always something that we can learn from any portrayal or any film. So uh, maybe we should focus on that and and not worry too much about whether somebody's got a watch on (laughs) yeah I agree I agree (laughs) fantastic now oh and I'm going to put you on the spot for the last question I have to put you on the spot a little and I'm going to ask for your top five favorite films that depict in some manner the Tudor uh, period I'm so glad you've gone with just films rather than throwing in television too, because I'd have really struggled to contain it to five had you done so. I think I'm going to sound like a real bore now, but I'm going to go with the golden oldies. I do love some of the more recent Tudor films, even the mad ones, but there's something of the comfort blanket in the Tudor films I watched and loved as a kid. And they've almost become like a muscle memory to me. So we'll start in at number five. Uh, Henry VIII and his six wives with Keith Michelle. There's a lot wrong with it, but there's a lot right with it as well. And in my mind, Keith Michelle is one of the definitive Henry VIII on screen. And aesthetically, the music of David Munro was breathtaking for me in that film. David Munro was an incredibly gifted uh, musician. He learned pretty much any early modern piece of musical equipment and uh, completely mastered it. And uh, you'll probably also recognise him from the Elizabeth R series. He did music for that and The Six Wives. He recorded many, many albums and very tragically died at a very young age. I'm a massive fan of his and the music for me makes those series. It really brings the Tudor court to life. Um, So David Monroe is a bit of a hero of mine. Number four, A Man for All Seasons from 1966. Again, this is not a historically accurate film. This is not a historically accurate portrayal of Thomas More. It's a very 1960s Thomas More, but I love it. And there's something really glorious about the film and it will always have a dear place in my heart. Number three is Lady Jane from 1986. Again, we've talked about inaccuracy in regard to that film but there is something about it 
that I find really endearing. Number two is Mary Queen of Scots from 1972 with the wonderful Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson. Uh, that was a, a companion film to a trilogy of films with Beckett and uh, Anne of the Thousand Days. And Lady Jane was actually moulded into the same sort of narrative. It was Trevenant's desire to bring a fourth into the canon. And I think it fits quite nicely. And therefore, number one, it's got to be Anne of the Thousand Days. Um, <laughs> uh, with no surprise to anyone who knows me, there's, there's something glorious about that film. And I'll probably go to my grave absolutely loving it. What they a are fantastic my... selection. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to kick myself later and I'll think, no, no, I've got to, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think I'll settle on those fine. Well, I think we should all have a watch party and just get together and, and watch each film, then have a discussion. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, and we should think about that. That would be that, really good. Yeah. Like a, a real film festival yes, sort of a collective film festival i think we're on to something let's discuss after this um and yeah. i just a, one that i didn't ask you about but i am curious to know what you think was the the more recent mary queen of scots film what did you think about yes that? so with saoirse ronan really really fascinating i really quite enjoyed parts of it thought it was really really interesting that all of a sudden, there was this big furore about the fact that Mary and Elizabeth meet in uh, the film. And people saying, oh, how could they do this? Well, every single production of their story has the meeting in it. It's kind of like, you know, I was kind of surprised that people were shocked that they were depicted meeting in it. Because in Mary Cooney Scott's, the, the 1972 film, they meet twice. In Mary of Scotland with Catherine Hepburn, they meet. You know, the, even in um, Helen Mirren performance, they meet in that as well. I think the, one of the only films that doesn't have the meeting is the television series with Elizabeth Hart. So this is a really old trope. And it, in my mind, it's like the tower scene in Out of a Thousand Days. It's entirely forgivable because it brings such brilliant drama to the piece. And it's one of those great what ifs, you know, what would that moment have looked like? So I found it really interesting that a lot of the criticism surrounded that and you know it wasn't uh, unique in doing so so yeah I, li I like certain elements of it definitely and I thought Saoirse Ronan was incredible she's a, a a real treat to watch actually absolutely and what breathtaking scenery as well I was just yes my goodness yeah. absolutely stunning now oh and the last thing I promise and then I'll let you get to work the last thing I need to <laughs> ask you about is what is your Tudor Queen's takeaway? So throughout this series, I'm going to be asking all my guests to give us a, rather than a, a Tudor takeaway, something specific to Tudor Queens or Queenship, something to nurture our love of this absolutely intriguing subject. Do you have one for us? I do. My Tudor takeaway in relation to Tudor Queens is the new blog of the extraordinary historian Kate McCaffrey who you have spoken to on this wonderful uh, platform. And she has completed the most extraordinary research on Anne Boleyn's Books of Hours at Hever Castle. It sheds new light on Anne's life. It tells us something about Catherine of Aragon's life. And most importantly, it uncovers a network of Kentish women who, out of solidarity with Anne, kept her book 
her inscription safe for us to enjoy today. And slightly ironically, in the process, got erased themselves. And Kate has uncovered these voices, these women, this network. And it's quite the most beautiful research that I've read in a long time. It makes me really excited about future possibilities in the field. And it gives me a massive confidence that such breakthroughs will absolutely happen with talented minds like Kate's on the case. I think Kate's going to do many, many great things and I can't wait to witness it all. So Kate is my takeaway. Go and find out all about the secrets of Anne Boleyn's books of ours. Marvel at that research but also marvel at Kate because she's doing incredible things and we're incredibly proud of her at Hever Castle. I'm so glad you mentioned that as your takeaway because, I, as you know, <laughs> I was so excited when she very kindly shared her research with me and you could go and listen to that episode that I recorded with Kate and she tells us all about her finds and it's extraordinary. And again, if you're interested in Anne's life, then you, you know, you need to know about this. This is a, some new research. Doesn't happen every day, but it's still happening, which is, as you say, such a, it gives me great hope as well that there's still a lot out there that we're hopefully going to uncover with bright minds like Kate's on the job. So Owen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk Tudors with me again and for taking part in our special Tudor Queens and Consorts series. It's, it's always an honour and a privilege to chat with you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.